High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and today we bring you another story from The Seduced, a miniseries related to my new book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood. This will be the last story in this brief miniseries. The book is now available at brick-and-mortar stores and all your online outlets. And if you've enjoyed this season, I hope you check it out. Here on the podcast, through the course of these six episodes, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. In our final episode, we're going to discuss a woman who Howard Hughes lured, but was never able to truly possess, personally or professionally. Gina Lola Brigida was part of a new wave of stars to emerge out of Europe after World War II, who would export the idea of a sexuality that was somehow both primal and modern to post-war baby-booming America. Like Brigitte Bardot and Gina's fellow Italian and supposed rival Sophia Loren, 
Lola Brigida was described in her country as an example of the Maggiorata Fisica, which literally translates to woman of enlarged physique. Much of the initial coverage of Lola Brigida in America analyzed her as though she were a zoo animal, or else as if her very existence was a dirty joke. The sex-crazed Italian press was no picnic either, and was especially vicious to stars like Gina, who found fame outside of Italy. Hughes met Gina before she became internationally famous, and in contrast to his reputation as the great star maker, instead of helping to propel Gina Lola Brigida into the stratosphere, Hughes's intervention actually caused her rise to fame to be delayed. Her encounter with Hughes is just one aspect of Gina Lola Brigida's long life in the public eye. At age 91, she's still alive and still attracting the attention of the Italian tabloids. Join us, won't you, for one last story of The Seduced. A native of Subbiaco, Italy, Luigina Lollobrigida was discovered as a student studying drawing and sculpture in Rome. A talent scout asked her to come to Cinecitta Studios, where she was offered 1,000 lira, which would be about $40 today, to play a movie role. She refused. As she later remembered, I told them my price was 1 million lira, thinking that would put a stop to the whole thing. But they said yes. She went on to appear in small parts in a handful of films. After she came in third in the Miss Italia beauty pageant, the sizes of the roles increased somewhat. In fact, a film was concocted in 1950 starring her, and basically about her, called Miss Italia, akin to the Linda Darnell vehicle Stardust. But with these films, Lola Brigida remained a strictly local phenomenon. In recent interviews, Lola Brigida has discussed being raped when she was a young woman. In September 2018, she said the perpetrator was a soccer player for the team Lazio and that he drugged her and that she had been a virgin. After the attack in 1949, she married a Yugoslavian doctor named Milko Skovic. She has said that she agreed to this marriage in the aftermath of the trauma, because she thought it was her best chance at a normal life. I felt ruined, she said. She also accused Milko of being a less-than-satisfactory husband. He played tennis and counted the money, she said. He did not do anything else. Nonetheless, the couple were legally married for over 20 years, and during Lola Brigida's rise and coast through her career, he was perceived as her manager. Just a year into the marriage, Milko's position as both manager and husband 
was threatened by an invitation from Howard Hughes. In July 1950, after seeing a photo in a magazine of a bikini-clad 23-year-old Gina Lalla Brigida, Hughes had her tracked down and brought from Rome to Los Angeles. His men had promised to send two plane tickets, one for Gina's husband, Milko, but they only sent one. Lola Brigida didn't want to travel so far away without her husband. But my husband trusted me, said Lola Brigida. He said, go. I don't want you to say one day that I didn't let you have a career. So I went alone. Gina was excited to see the Hollywood sights, but that wasn't in the cards. All I saw was Howard Hughes, she complained. Gina was installed in a suite at the townhouse hotel. She would later complain that the hotel which sat near MacArthur Park, west of downtown, was in the middle of nowhere, and that she had been purposely kept away from the center of the city. It's true that the townhouse was not in the center of the city, but then Los Angeles has no real center. The real problem was not the location of the hotel. It was that Gina was under total lockdown there. Guards were stationed outside her door, and unless accompanied by Howard, she wasn't allowed to leave the room. Hughes had even arranged with the front desk to block her phone calls. A week went by, and another. RKO had promised to arrange Milko's travel to Los Angeles after Gina got settled. But after she had been in the hotel for a month and a half, they still wouldn't send for her husband. Finally, Gina recalled, Hughes picked her up at the townhouse and told her he was taking her to a business conference. The next thing she knew, Gina was in Hughes's plane and he was flying them to Las Vegas. The only business Hughes wanted to discuss was when Gina was going to ditch her husband. Hughes asked me to divorce Milko and marry him, she recalled. Then I would have a fast, brilliant career. Millions, furs, jewels, everything I could desire. Gina refused the proposal and demanded a screen test. Hughes gave her some script pages to read. The dialogue was in praise of divorce. After that... Gina demanded that she be allowed to return to Rome and her husband. A plane ticket was booked, but before she went, Hughes threw her a farewell party at her hotel. At 3 a.m., after much champagne, Hughes presented Gina with a contract. Tipsy and tired and unable to read more than a few words in English, Gina asked if someone could explain to her what she was signing. Satisfied with the explanation she got, Gina signed, 
and went to bed. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. Back in Rome, she would soon become one of the biggest stars in Europe. There was demand for her to come to America and star in Hollywood movies, but she couldn't do it. The contract she had signed with Hughes made it prohibitively expensive for other American producers to rent her services from Hughes, and she refused to work for Hughes. But she had regrets, later, that she had rejected Hughes's advances. I was too innocent at the time, she would lament. I later realized he was a very interesting man, more interesting than my husband. Back in Rome, Gina began appearing in better movies in bigger parts. Cinema was booming, both in Rome and elsewhere in Europe, and in addition to Italian films, Gina began starring in French pictures, such as Fan Fan La Tulipe. But it was a distinctly homegrown project that took her to the next level. Bread, Love, and Dreams starred the Italian neorealist director Vittorio De Sica as a middle-aged military man who sets his sights on Gina's local peasant girl as a potential wife. Today, Bread, Love, and Dreams is marketed as containing Lola Brigida's most naturalistic performance, which doesn't seem accurate. Nothing is particularly naturalistic in Bread, Love, and Dreams, certainly not Lola Brigida's performance. The film is an early example of a subgenre known as pink neorealism, which took the basic trappings of Italian neorealist cinema, which attempted to document the gritty realities of life in post-war Europe, and basically turned the frown upside down. Bread, Love, and Dreams is about normal people living their lives in post-war small-town Italy, 
but the dialogue, the situations, and the performances are cartoonish compared to, say, De Sica's The Bicycle Thief. In this, and in another film with a similar setting, Jules Dassin's The Law, Lola Brigida's performance reminds me somewhat of Anna Magnani's performance in Pasolini's Mama Roma, made in 1962. All three roles may be infused with genuine passion, but instead of hewing to the recognizable patterns of real people in real life, they feel larger than life. As a more accessible version of neorealism, Bread, Love, and Dreams was widely praised. Like Fanfan La Tulipe before it, Bread, Love, and Dreams won the top prize at the Berlin Film Festival. But unlike that French film, this time, Gina was singled out for much praise, even earning a nomination for the BAFTAs, the English equivalent of the Oscars. Bread, Love, and Dreams did for Gina Lola Brigida what And God Created Woman would do for Brigitte Bardot a few years later, with the key difference being that Bardot shot to stardom in a film directed by her husband, and, at least initially, her stardom was indivisible from that relationship. Milko Skovich may or may not have been pulling strings behind Gina. But Lola Brigida was perceived as a more independent phenomenon. Still stymied by her contract to Hughes, Gina made her first significant English-language films in Europe, in Hollywood films shot on location. The first of these was John Huston's Beat the Devil, in which Gina played the Italian wife and a scam partner of Humphrey Bogart's scheming fallen aristocrat. 26-year-old Gina looks the part of the crafty European trophy wife, but her English is not really good enough yet for her to be playing a role of this size in that language, in a film which posed a number of challenges. Mainly that the whole shoot was kind of an excuse for Houston and Bogart to have a European vacation, and there was no script, or even story at the beginning of production, and Truman Capote would write pages overnight that Houston either used or changed at the last minute. For these men, making Beat the Devil was essentially a party thrown on producer David O. Selznick's dime. But Gina, married and serious about her career, was not interested in joining the party. And Houston and Bogart nicknamed her Lolo Frigida. With all of these obstacles in mind, Gina does fine. But in terms of performance, she's easily overshadowed in the finished film by co-star Jennifer Jones, who wasn't a great actress. Lola Brigida would claim that on her first day on set, producer Selznick, Jones's husband, offered to pay Gina her promised salary to quit the movie. As she would later put it, He was afraid that I was too beautiful near Jennifer Jones. Gina refused this offer. She didn't care about the money. She wanted to do the movie. 
And though it was a big money loser for its investors, the combination of Beat the Devil and the delayed international release of Bread, Love, and Dreams turned Gina Lollobrigida into the cover girl of a new cinematic phenomenon. Literally, in August 1954, her face was on the cover of Time magazine, the poster image of a story on Italy's surging film industry, which was apparently causing no small amount of consternation in America's film industry, even though, quote, hardly any Italian film makes enough money at the box office to defray production costs. In addition to what the story claimed were excessive drinking orgies, studio spies, and gorgeous villas with swimming pools, Rome was offering the cinema makers and consumers of the world a kind of beauty new to the U.S. eye, an earth-heavy Italian beauty as rich as roses in an olive dusk. A producer named Emmanuel Casuto added that his country's women are beautiful because they stay dumb. We pick our gorgeous flowers where we find them, in offices, shops, factories, farms, even by the wayside. We keep our film actresses in their places, which means we keep them feminine. They have simple tastes. The article only continued to double down on the notion that Italian actresses were bodies, divorced from personalities, or brains, quoting a director as praising the Italian method of dubbing voices after shooting images for allowing him to put the acting in later. This comment was followed by an uncredited aphorism. An actress in Italy needs only two expressions, horizontal and vertical. The article included brief profiles of several actresses, each of whom it partially defined by revealing their heights, weights, and bust-waist hip measurements. The same went for Gina, whose vital statistics were listed as 36, 22, 35, and 5 foot 5 inches, although the author was careful to note that Lola Brigida does not quite belong in the bouquet with the other Italian roses. Though, she probably has no more talent than it takes for a black-eyed Susan to allure a bee. Gina was said to possess something else. The iron will of the true star personality. She is up at five every morning, works hard until six in the evening, studies her part or reads scripts for an hour before bed at ten. She was said to be obsessed with how her image was disseminated in the international media, carefully filling scrapbooks with clippings, and using the courts to enforce and shape her persona. Quote, Gina's most extravagant outbursts of vanity are connected with her hobby, suing people. She has been involved in as many as ten lawsuits at once. Her most famous day in court came when she asked for damages from an Italian movie critic who wrote a derogatory review about her udder. He and his editor were fined $176 and costs. 
Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Gina was still unable to make movies in Hollywood, but her best chance for Hollywood stardom came in 1956 with Trapeze, a Technicolor circus movie directed by Carol Reed and featuring Gina as a wantonly self-interested sex pot who plays an aging, crippled master trapeze artist played by Burt Lancaster against his young protege, played by Tony Curtis. I had never heard of trapeze before I started writing this episode, and I have no idea why, because it's terrific. It looks incredible. The widescreen color cinematography by Robert Krasker, who shot Reed's The Third Man, makes for maybe the most gorgeous film of its era filmed almost entirely inside. Trapeze has that strange and very 1950s juxtaposition of dreamlike, decadent artificiality, and naturalism, with performances influenced by method acting and an effort at realism in the trapeze stunts, some of which Lancaster, who had been a circus acrobat in the 1930s, performed himself. This mixed vibe is perfect for Lola Brigida, who, with probably her most challenging English-language part, certainly to this point, shows more depth as a performer than in any film of hers that I've seen. In 1958, after Trapeze had successfully crossed her over to the American market, Orson Welles made a short film, originally called Viva Italia, but sometimes called Portrait of Gina. Wells had been working in England and Europe since the late 1940s, a period that included the triumph of his role in Carol Reed's The Third Man, but also included a lot of struggle. By 1958, when he made Portrait of Gina, Wells was over a decade removed from the peak of his American success. He appears on camera in the short documentary, which was intended to be aired on ABC television in the U.S., very overweight, dressed in a tuxedo and hat, a cigar ever-present. He frequently addresses the camera, in interstitial transitional segments, and even in interviews with the subjects of the piece, he seems to be really talking to the viewer rather than the interviewee. When ABC received Wells' cut of the movie, they refused to air it, and it's easy to see why it wasn't appropriate for a mainstream TV network, then making bank on shows like Gunsmoke and Maverick. 
In fact, the film almost seems designed as Wells's way of trolling Hollywood companies that had, in Wells's mind, sent him into exile. The film begins as a meditation on not being appreciated in one's home country. This is the gist of an interview with Rosano Brazzi, an Italian actor who, over the previous five years, had starred in a number of major Hollywood films. With the aid of quick-cut editing, Wells completely overpowers the supposed subject of the interview. You know, the Italian public, to me, it's like a beautiful woman. You are in love with her. But you never know whether or not she loves you. See, I tell you, I've been an actor now in Italy for about uh, 17 years. You know, it's a long time. It's a lot of experience. And uh, I tell you, maybe I had uh, three periods in Italy. Periods? You mean you were a success three times and three times a failure, and after each failure... I had to start all over again. And today, when you're a top star in the rest of the world, in your home country, you're working in your fourth comeback. This is the time... I guess in Italy, an actor's future is practically assured when the public starts to say that he's finished. Gina would allegedly spend decades trying to suppress the distribution of Portrait of Gina and was more or less successful. It's not commercially available in the U.S. I watched it on YouTube. You get a sense of what she might have been opposed to in the film based on how Wells describes how she rode the coattails of fame to abandon her roots. Gina, who was just making a start in the movies, used to live somewhere in this neighborhood in a house not far from the railway station. I can't remember just which one. Well, actually, it wasn't very long before she was on her way up in the world. For the next few years, I lost track of her personally. Professionally, up and up and up is just where Gina kept right on going. I'm... I'm pretty sure that just as soon as she was playing bigger parts, she was living in better houses. As fast as her billing improved, so did her address. That's a safe enough guess. While Wells's narration is describing Gina's ascent, his camera is scanning up still images of Gina's legs to her breasts and face. Finally, Wells meets her face-to-face and presses her for insight on her fame and infamy in Italy specifically. As she attempts to answer him, she looks incredibly uncomfortable, first struggling to speak to him in English and then stopping herself from commenting at all. Uh, In Italy, they frequently... Uh, begin to appreciate an Italian, an, Italian, an Italian actor, my English is awful. Wait a minute, I, I want to understand that. You mean that they only begin to appreciate an actor after... He has been uh, widely praised outside of Italy. But Rosano's had a success here, three successes and three failures. No, because in Italy, as soon as uh, the producers or uh, the press have created a star or an idol... What do they do? They do everything they can to destroy. Now, what do the newspapers do to try to destroy you? Everything. But, of course, they fail. Mm, Yes. Gina. Gina, you're indestructible. (laughs) (laughs) Who are me? Who are you? With that diamond on your finger and this house and those dogs to protect you and all the world at your feet? Uh, Gina, what can they do to you? Oh, they, they, they say... They accused me 
everything they do in a... What do they accuse you of? Of everything, except uh, to be uns unfaithful to my husband and... Uh... They couldn't say you aren't a good wife. What else don't they accuse you of? Of wanting to change my sex. Well, nobody could say that Gina Lola Bridget uh, isn't a girl. No, isn't that marvelous? And nobody could possibly deny that you've done more than any single person to make Italian motion pictures so very popular all over the world. I want you to say that your country is really grateful. These newspapers that are attacking you, Gina, and that producer who's been suing you. And... Sono terribili, sono. These tax collectors. Hmm? Sono unos... Mm. <laughs> I can't say this in television. Not even in Italian? No. While Gina's collecting herself, okay, there are some words on television which can always be spoken. And uh, here they are, a message from our sponsors. What's readily evident is that above all, she's self-protective, and that Wells has tried to crack her protected image. The film ultimately does feel careless and mean-spirited. Wells clearly really wants to be talking about himself, and because he can't sell that show, he steamrolls all over this Italian sex symbol. Today, it's hard to watch Portrait of Gina and not have sympathy for Gina. This is more than can be said for a lot of her later interviews and incursions into supposedly protecting her image in the media. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Sophia Loren merited just a handful of sentences in the 1954 Time magazine story that occasioned Gina's debut on the cover. But the 19-year-old was already a gnat buzzing around the 26-year-old Lola Brigida. They first met at the Berlin Film Festival that year. Gina refused to participate in a photo op with Loren until Yvonne DiCarlo, of all people, agreed to get in the middle of the two Italian actresses. At another event that year with both Lorraine and Lola Brigida in attendance, it was suggested that the two actresses participate in a live chest-measuring contest. Lorraine allegedly agreed, while a disgusted Lola Brigida stormed out. Both actresses over the years would make catty and snide comments insisting that the onus of the rivalry rested entirely with their rival. This was, of course, a way of perpetuating the rivalry, as was Lolo's habit of making proclamations, drawing attention to their differences, as when she said, We made completely different careers. 
I wanted to be an artist more than anything else. I wanted a career on a high level. The implication was that Lorraine was a sellout. She did appear in the second sequel to Bread, Love, and Dreams in the Lola Brigida role, which is sort of like Rosie Huntington-Whiteley replacing Megan Fox in the third Transformers movie, by which I mean it was an event that did not matter. What did matter is that Sophia Loren was free to appear in Hollywood movies, shot in America, like Houseboat with Cary Grant, during a period when Gina could only appear in European co-productions shot in Europe thanks to her contract with Howard Hughes. Even when that contract expired, Gina never made a pilgrimage to Hollywood to show her intent to conquer Hollywood films. She did appear opposite major American stars, such as Frank Sinatra and Rock Hudson, in movies that were widely released in America. But these movies were set in Europe, and usually shot there. As Lola Brigida aged, her acting career began to taper off, and she kept herself busy with art as a photographer and sculptor. She even ran, unsuccessfully, for European Parliament in 1999. But despite the fact that her last on-screen appearance came in 1997, she has remained a fixture of international headlines over the past 20 years, into her 80s and 90s. Gina would stay with her first husband throughout the bulk of her movie stardom. Though she would say the marriage had functionally ended years before, she announced their separation in 1966 and obtained an Italian divorce in 1971, just a few months after the practice was legalized in that Catholic country. In 1984, when she was 57, she went to a party in Monaco and met a 23-year-old man named Javier Regal. Gina later admitted, I have always had a weakness for young men. The pair began dating. In fact, according to some news reports, they dated for 22 years before announcing their engagement. And then, according to Gina, they were engaged for only two months before calling the whole thing off. Later, Gina would clarify her side of the story. She claimed she had only been involved with Regal for two years, beginning in 2004, and that when Regal decided to lie about the length of their involvement, she didn't protest. And yet, there are images of the pair together on Getty, dating back as far as 2001. In 2010, Lola Brigida and Regal were married in Barcelona. There were eight witnesses in attendance, but Gina Lola Brigida says she wasn't there. She claims she didn't even know about the wedding and that it proceeded with a proxy in her place. Regal would say that she did, in fact, know about the wedding and the proxy and had signed documents approving it and that the couple had wanted to get married in this extremely unconventional fashion in order to avoid media attention. When Gina did discover the wedding, she claims, 
she filed a lawsuit against her husband for committing fraud. The pair have continued to sue one another for years. In 2015, with the situation still very much unresolved, Gina vowed to Vanity Fair, I will destroy the son of a bitch. Eventually, Gina's adult son became worried that his mother was not of totally sound mind, and in 2014, petitioned an Italian court to assign an administrator to take over power of attorney over Gina's finances. At the time, the 87-year-old Lolo was living with a 27-year-old male assistant-slash-manager named Andrea Piazzola. The star believed her son was trying to prevent her from giving any of her money to her new, young friend-slash-employee, who she insisted was the best person I have ever found in my life until now. The Italian court decided that Gina Lola Brigida was of sound mind and that an administrator was unnecessary. But a court ruled against Lola Brigida in the Regal case in 2017. The most recent interview I could find with Gina, published in September 2018 in the Italian daily newspaper The Corriere della Sera, includes much fiery commentary on all of these matters. She insisted that the Regal marriage was a sham and that the courts would soon side with her appeal. She conducted this interview accompanied by Andrea Piazzola, who made sure she didn't say too much about Regal. She was scheduled for a major TV interview that same week, but was rushed to the hospital after a fall at home left her with a bloody nose. Luckily, she was reported to have said, blood from the nose is a blessing. This concludes our mini-season on the peripheral stories of seduction, sex, lies, and stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood. We'll be back soon with the continuation of our season, Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon. Join us then won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editor is Olivia Natt. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode with lists of all of our sources and the music used on each episode. And if you go to youmustrememberthispodcast.com slash seduction, you'll find information about how to pre-order the book that this season is related to, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood, written by me. 
We also have a schedule of events that I'll be doing related to the book, which include book signings, film screenings, and more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. Want to win a signed copy of my new book? You can. I've teamed up with my publisher to give 50 listeners, chosen at random, the chance to win a signed copy of Seduction. This giveaway is open to U.S. residents 18 years of age and older only. Rules and regulations apply. To learn more and enter now, visit our website at youmustrememberthispodcast.com slash seduction. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. She's the 20th century.